Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of a recent episode exploring the history of investors holding businesses accountable and the dawn of the ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, movement. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Today's program contains descriptions of death by suicide. If you or someone you know is struggling with thoughts of suicide, help is available. You can call the National Suicide Prevention Line for English language at 1-800-273-8255 and for Spanish at 1-888-628-9454. The National Suicide Prevention Line also has representatives available to chat online at suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Well, Tammy Charles is joining us today. She's in Louisville, Kentucky. Tammy, welcome to On Point. Thank you, Magna. Thank you so much for being with us today. I wonder if we could start... um, I'd love to hear the description of what your son, Seven Bridges, what was his smile like? <laughs> Infectious. That kid smiled the second day we saw him and had not stopped. He was, um, his smile was infectious. He was a genuinely happy, happy kid. Mm-hmm. And t- tell me more about uh, the, the, the second day you saw him. Why was that particularly important? Oh, it was the first day that I, was, yeah. that I saw yeah. him that was important. But the second day was the day that he smiled. Uh-huh. And, okay. you know, they okay. say that the angels are playing with the babies and all of that. But, boy, that you couldn't tell me that wasn't a big grin. <laughs> and he kept it. And it was always there. It was very easy to smile. Um from the second day that he left until the last day I saw him, mm. I saw that smile. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I know as a mom, there are things about your your children that shine through, right? From the moment you first get to hold them, just like aspects of who they are, which you know, this is this is your soul speaking to me. So tell me, you know, what else about Seven you just knew about him from the start? Compassion. That little guy was very compassionate. He loved people. He loved serving. Um, he was very thought conscious about the next person. And I, I want to blame that on his nurture at home from his father and I. But it was just something that was innate about him. He always and often, and a lot of adults, of course, always mention how he was always so willing to run up to them and give them a hug or ask them how they are. Um, the compassionate component was probably the biggest part of it. He cared, Mm. genuinely cared about things, about people, um, and about feelings. Mm. He cared about it. Yeah, and and it seems that he cared about people even when they necessarily didn't show him that care back, right? Absolutely. Yeah, you want to tell me a little bit about that? (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Seven was one who accepted everyone. He was that kid that played with everyone on the playground. He talked to everybody. He never had any cliques or or any groups that he would associate with. And then he would also come into defense of the ones that were shunned in some way or another. He also um, was able to you know, deflect some of the things that would come his way with humor. Um, and from that, he was able to take the brunt of people's ugliness and understand that that was not necessarily something that he needed to fight back against or he needed to defend himself against what they did to him. Um, He was always cognizant of how he moved and how um, the actions that he took, Mm -hmm. very cognizant of those things. Mm. Now, um, he he was born with um, with with some some uh, some challenges at birth, right? And and absolutely, that, and that led to him being bullied. 
at school? Um, that is some mind calisthenics and is a little bit of a stretch. However, okay. yes, he was born with um, imperforated anus, which allowed him, it's a one in 5,000 rare disease, which allowed him to give get a 15-hour surgery on the day that he was born. Wow, okay. Um, he then, of course, had a colostomy bag for a short time, and then we just dealt with all of the after effects and trying to have him the closest to a normal uh, digestive system and the as normal as digestive system as we can help him achieve. Now, the bullying started for some, some other reasons. Okay. It just ended up being one of the one of the stones that was thrown that you know sometimes he had a little fecal incontinence and of course it came with the smell. So it was not he's had that his entire life. So uh there was always something said, something, you know, just it just comes with it. Yeah. Yeah. Nevertheless, it didn't lead to him being bullied. It was just a part of it. Mm-hmm. Well, by the way, I appreciate the correction. <laughs> and, sure. and, you know, call, 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 uh, it was a polite correction, by the way. People usually don't, don't give me the benefit of the doubt of calling it mind calisthenics. But I really, <laughs> I do, I do appreciate it. Listen, I'm just trying to, I, I want, I, I want, I don't, I want to hear as much as you want to tell us about your son. And, um, and the reason why I asked that previous question is because, I mean, he, Seven experienced a lot of bullying, right? Correct. He experienced bullying as we all have in some sort of in in some sort of environment where you're pointed out where you're different. Now, um, he wasn't his entire life repetitively bullied. His bullying began August twenty seventh um, when a. a you know, five months before he died when he refused to argue or fight a girl that had called him a racial slur. Mm. And so the one who did come up and, and defend him was angry that he didn't have that defense mechanism in him. So that person who at that time defended him against the person became his bully because he didn't do any adverse or any consequential things towards that the, the other little girl. Well, from that, um, whatever policies that go come into place with with um, fighting and that those that was just part of it. Mm. Well, it then began to be the bullying of once my husband and I began to advocate for just a paper trail. Just write it down. Like, you know, the gut, the little dude got choked. And for me, I'm military. You know, just give me the, the third copy. I'm sure you have one written down. And once that was exposed, that they had done nothing. None of the policy steps that are implemented in, in our schools, um, they begin to be offended. And then, of course, you know, ashamed, ashamed from it because I am that parent that was constantly there. I have been my son was 10 years old and I have served the policy council and the PTA for nine years. Mm-hmm. I was there at everything and seven did every single thing. And oftentimes we were the only families or one of very few that participated in everything. So it gave me some sort of. I guess in retrospect, false sense of security. But at the time, I thought that I was building um, a, a stronger bridge and connection to the administrators, and then of course the other people that t- had my child in their care. Yeah. Turns yeah. out, where I advocated, and because I was able to advocate the way that I was able to advocate, unlike other parents who children had been bullied, they'd be so frustrated, they'd come in swearing and wanting to fight, and I didn't. Uh, those policies that they sent home that they had us to sign, I also read them and also read the parts that they were supposed to uphold. And in finding that they did not, and I was able to display how they did not, my son not only uh, had that one incident of being bullied or, or choked on the bus, he then began to receive the wrath of the adults, the, the teachers uh-huh. who were embarrassed, who were uh, being shown in the light that they necessarily overall did not necessarily have. But with this situation, 
in this child, in this history, it was shown that for the first time, somebody showed it. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, after I made a viral post, <laughs> there were people coming in from everywhere saying, oh, that happened to me, that happened to me, that happened to me. Then compounding the embarrassment of course, and the backing of this bullied live uh, Facebook video that I did. Mm. That began to have the teachers treat him a different way. Seven had been, his principal even said, Seven's the first child that come through this school from kindergarten to fifth grade and has never been in trouble. Uh-huh. Do you want... Uh, that is some, that's some good stuff. Yeah. Um, do, do you mind and not ask, that... You, can, can I ask, I'm, I'm so sorry to interrupt there, Tammy. Sure, go ahead. But, but so you're, you're talking about um, a, a, a period of several months where there was, there, you know, but he had he had experienced. I would call that severe bullying, right? Being choked Absolutely. on the bus, and you advocating uh, effectively, or at least uh, fearlessly, on his behalf, and that making things. It sounds like the adults were, in a sense, um, some adults were. Uh, 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 then you know he experienced retribution from from them. Absolutely. C- can you tell me if during this time, like? Uh, how was Seven handling it? What did he talk to, to, with you about? I mean, how how did you see this? Well, we happen? talked every day. Yeah, yeah. And my son was one of the—he was one of those children that a lot of parents and a lot of other children were pretty mad at him about because he was very honest. And if you ask him a question, he'd answer it. Um, <laughs> and so each day, as because I went on to push it up to the um, Board of Education, and then they were—they had to do a school administrative— investigation. And, oh, that's that really burned them up. Um, it all started necessarily not even from him being bullied, but the fact that there were the policies that were in place were not followed. Yeah. And and that was part of us. Well, Tammy, and Charles, hang on here for just a second. That music means sure. I've, I'm, I'm afraid I've got to take a quick break here. Now, I wanted to spend some time with you hearing about um, all that came before what's the the worst day of your life, I know, uh, in order to help us understand um, what happened to Seven. And we're going to talk about that when we come back, because this hour we're focusing on um, the mental health of children of color, specifically in this country. So there's much to discuss, and we'll do so in a moment. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the Balance Scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the balanced scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody had thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short term, midterm, long term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, it, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. 
Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're talking about meeting the needs of mental, the mental health needs, specifically of children of color. And Tammy Charles joins us today. She's in Louisville, Kentucky. In a moment, we're going to hear as well from uh, Dr. Kevin Simon, who's here with us in Boston, Massachusetts. But um, so, Tammy... I have to say, I hate asking this question, but I, I mean, we, please, please, <laughs> Magnet, don't hate it. We are helping, yeah, and and we are doing this together. So, so sometimes we got to do the rough stuff. Go ahead, feel okay. free. Well, your strength is um, is an inspiration to me because as I was walking to work today, I was um, I had dropped my own kiddo off at school just before I came here to work, um, you know, and I held his hand the whole way, and I was thinking, what would my life be like if I couldn't feel his hand in mine? Yeah. So um, tell me what happened on January 19th in 2019. Well, um, let's start with January 18th. Mm-hmm. Um, my son had come home from school and we had already begun to had already had months of speaking about how to handle uh, the bullies, the things that, that that were coming up and how teachers would take some things and, and hold it against him or, or pressure him because, of course, his bullying story had gone so viral and they were looked into such a bad light. They would say like, seven, you know, what would your mom think if you did this? What would your mom think? you did? And and when you're, at, when you're at school, you know, people don't bring up your parents. So at a 10-year-old guy and he was prepubescent, um, it was a little embarrassing for him and, you know, things that we would talk about and go through. Well, on that Friday, which was the beginning of the Martin Luther King three-day weekend, um, we had talked that morning, and I said, you know, we have this day to do, and then we have a three-day weekend, and and let's just process what we can do together um, and how you're feeling and all of that. And we had been doing that at home, praying, talking about it, getting getting out, and him telling me everything. Well, that day he got, he, and then when he came home, I noticed in his eye like something else was up, um, and I asked him who he played with. He told me about the one little boy that has pretty much been ostracized the whole school year or since they've been in school because of his size, and and he's a bigger kid, and you know he doesn't have a lot of friends, but Seven cho- had to play with him because he had already told me that because he had been telling on the other people for bullying. And by this time, the school officials were incredibly diligent about mm. any reports <laughs> that any child said about bullying. So the, the kids were really feeling some effects at home and in school. Well, that made Seven, you know, almost enemy of the state because he did say something. You know, he just wanted it to stop. He didn't realize how it was, it wasn't, um, he didn't realize that him trying to be protected was making him an enemy of the state. So he found that out at recess on that day, you know, at the end of it, or that was just the last straw. So he comes home and we talk and he tells me who he plays with. He goes and plays this video game, kind of blowing out steam. We mm-hmm. eat some and then uh, we have this moment. <laughs> if you have a little boy, then you know you got to watch all the superheroes. <laughs> so we sat and watched uh, Black Lightning and, and um, Supergirl, some of his favorites, and we laid in bed and cuddled. And as I cuddled him and, and we're watching him, I'm telling and I'm saying to him, we love you so much. I love you. We Everything that we do is for you. Uh, everything that we try to work through is for you. Seven, our entire being is about you. About you. So as he's getting out of bed and I'm trying to kiss on him, the little extra part, you know, he's getting to the age, like, come on, mom, get off me. But um, he pulls away in a kind of way that is not, is a little bit more than mom, get off me. But also now in retrospect, leaning to, you know, uh, some sort of separation maybe in his head. Mm. The next morning, uh, I, Seven has, of course, a birth defect, so I don't let him spend, he didn't spend the night over a lot of people's houses just because of the nature of 
of his issues where, you know, he had to be naked for somebody to help him. Nevertheless, our house was the house that everybody came for. So that night he uh, played his game and he played and, and talked on the phone with his best friend, my nephew, his cousin, first cousin. And they talked till 3 a.m. I saw that on the phone. And finally, I was like, boy, go to bed, you know, just go to bed. So, you know, we're, we're going to pick them up tomorrow. Everybody's coming over here. Go to bed. So he goes to bed. And at 9, I get him up to, you know, finish some chores if we're having company. And then um, here, here are some writing things. And I'm a very education educational parent. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we're going to work on these. You're going to read this, this one little chapter in the book, and then you're going to write this chapter. Let's work on your penmanship. And then you're done for the weekend. And I was at the grocery store trying to get food for eight boys Mm. for three days, um, eight teenage boys for three days. And then plan, of course, we were going to go hear the Martin Luther King, I Have a Dream speech that they give here in Louisville at the Muhammad Ali uh, Museum. This is what we did every year. Well, uh, as I come home with all of the groceries, I'm knocking on the door, banging on the door, you know, because your boys got to come help you get the groceries out. And uh, about 15 minutes, uh, me banging on everyone because he did stay up till three. So I just assumed that he had gone back to sleep. Mm-hmm. And we never really left seven at home, but he was getting 10 now. So this hour, you know, that we left him was kind of, you know, a test yeah. in, in so to speak, practice. Um, And finally, after much to do, I was inside the house looking all over the place because at this time he was a jokester. Girl, he was such a jokester because he's going to hide behind the something. And at this point, I'm frustrated, like, okay, dude, I am not playing. Where are you? I don't want to play anymore. Where are you? And that is, you know, now I'm like, has he made it to where, like, like when he was a small, small child, I'd have to look under the bed or look <laughs> under the pillows. So you remember that with your kids. Oh, yeah. So I was like, man, I'm now I'm have to shift into this mode. And I'm thinking to myself, man, you're too big for me to have to be looking around here. And you know better. And so and so and so. And as I looked in his closet, girl, um, after, of course, going all over our home, basement and everything, outside, inside, neighbors, like, where is this dude? I go back in this room and I find my son in his final resting place. And I grab him by the waist at the same time, almost thinking, I guess, you know, almost thinking like still in that playful mind, like, boy, don't don't play like this. You know, this is not this is not how this is not a game. This is not what you do to play. And as I got my son on the floor, I saw then, Magna, that my child was with God. Mm. Of course, I began, I am eight years uh, wartime disabled American veteran, uh, Navy medical. So I have seen my share of dead bodies. And I have done my share of resuscitation. So doing it on my son and beginning that, I had enjoyed a great cup of coffee before I came home. And as I breathed my breath into him. And then the breath that escaped his body was mine. It smelled of coffee. I knew then that my son was gone. Um, besides having to later do, you know, decipher all the, the thoughts that were going through my head at the time, the biggest one was reviving him and getting him mm. emergency help. Mm-hmm. But I knew, I knew. Yeah. Um, I immediately called my husband, who I had just just dropped off at choir practice, choir rehearsal, uh, getting him here. We only had one car working, so I had to get him here. And ironically, uh, my son was 80 pounds, and we knew that. I, you know, I, I had a scale. You know, we're girls, so we have scales everywhere. So he would always jump on the thing. And when the emergency people weren't coming fast enough, I attempted to pick my son up and I put him over my shoulder and I was telling him, son, we're on our way to the hospital. And at that time, the EMS bust through and I remember screaming, help my baby, not save him. 
because that was something that I, it wasn't in my head. Well, I didn't want to admit, but help my baby. And as many of them arrived, Magna, as many of them came to his aid, they, police and everything, they pushed my husband and I out of our home. We were out of the home. And of course, in retrospect, when something happens to a child, it's always thought and, and treated as foul play. Right. And who wants to put 10-year-old and suicide in the same sentence? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Tammy, first of all, I... I cannot find the right words to express my sorrow that um, that that ha- that happened to both seven and to you and your family. And my gratitude that you have taken this horror and have tried to turn it into a force to help others. So that's what this hour is about. I'm going to give you a little bit of a break here for a second, um, okay. and, and let me just bring in Dr. Kevin Simon. Um, he's sitting across the table with me, and he's been listening since the, the start of the show. Dr. Simon is an adult child and adolescent psychiatrist. Uh, he's uh, an, inst- an instructor in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and an assistant in the Department of Psychiatry at uh, Boston Children's Hospital. Um, Dr. Simon, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. And Ms. Bridges, um, thank you for sharing the story regarding Seven. You know, um, so Seven is uh, a, one child in uh, a group of many. Mm-hmm. And I think for for some people, and I'll admit myself included, when I found out that... Um, the rate of death by suicide for for um, black children in particular between the ages of uh, five and twelve there were there were some studies done a couple mm-hmm. of years ago um, was twice that of other children it, it really took me aback it's a shocking statistic yeah no um, it is and so hearing miss bridges um, miss Charles Tammy well, Charles sorry miss Charles um, talk about yeah, her son I was one of those 90s ladies that kept my last name. <laughs> that's that's same okay. here. Go same women. here. Um, my wife kept her last name. So, um, <laughs> hearing her talk about her son, unfortunately, it is a common thing that we see, um, at least you know, in the emergency rooms and the hospitals and um, the studies that you're referring to. You know, a lot of people think because of the pandemic. Um, mental health has worsened, and there is some exacerbation of, of depression, anxiety, certainly. Um, but actually, this predates the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you actually look sure. at the data, starting around 99, 2000, there's a switch of um, black and brown youth having an uptick um, twice as much in terms of suicide attempts and suicide completions. And the startling aspect is the age of the youth, right? So you're talking about 10, 11, yeah. 12. Um, and then even more recently, um, between 2017 and 2019, we've, we've recognized an uptick in adolescent black girls. Um, this is about mm-hmm. 15 to 17 years old. So the, the question begets is, you know, what's exactly happening at a, you know, preteen years mm-hmm. where someone is thinking that that's a solution um, to their problems, right? And so um, Mrs. Charles described, one, growing up with a chronic medical condition, and we know that that's a um, risk factor for things like depression, for anxiety, right? Not being able to do some pro-social things like sleepovers. Um, then layer in, now you're heading into middle school, where classically yeah. people are going to yeah. be rude, tease, um, yet now yeah. you're teasing someone in in seven's case that has already been going from day one of his trying life, to figure yeah. out well who am I how do I fit into um, this larger society and context um, but there's a number of things that that uh, Tammy mentioned that unfortunately I'm sorry she, Dr. Simon yeah, yes I'm sorry but but seven wasn't already wasn't going through who he was and what he what how to fit in. 
we had his life so structured that he found out right before he died that there was a place that he did not fit. Mm-hmm. And that brought it on for him. So I'm sure that's, sure that's probably true with other people, but for this kid, he knew exactly who he was. He knew exactly who he loved. He, he, he knew exactly what happiness was, but he found out was that the world was not as his life and his parents had made it to be so beautiful. Right. Excuse my interruption. No, 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 no. It, it, what, you're, what you're highlighting is what a number of parents, um, particularly of color, find out is here it is. Um, so I have a, a three-and-a-half-year-old and a, and a one-year-old. And mm-hmm. um, very regularly read to them. The books and the pictures that they see have kids that look like them. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. unfortunately, the evidence shows when you have now kids of color who enter into school, and this is as early as preschool, um, our society has certain stereotypes that are believed or myths that are believed. And so seven or or my son his name's kj right could be doing the exact same thing as their peers exact same thing playing with legos doing whatever yeah but the perception is because there's some melanin hue Mm. kj's likely going to be doing something that's bad and so now if something actually does happen right there's a push there's a tease it the evidence shows that black boys black girls are in detention more often, are suspended more often, end up in juvenile justice more often. Yet we know the behaviors that they exhibit are the same behaviors as any other youth. Mm -hmm. Um, That's right. But the adults that are around them, like how do they view what it is that they're doing? And so unfortunately um, for black youth, it tends to be that society, and so those people who are in society, doctors, teachers, lawyers, um, tend to characterize their behavior as like deviant even though it really is just typical Mm. adolescent behavior typical teen behavior um so what you're describing um miss charles it i'm just saying it 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 follows what even the evidence shows yeah oh yeah dr kevin simon and and tammy charles hang on here for just a second got to take that second break here um and when we come back we're I want to talk about sort of the then what needs to change outside of homes to provide the kind of assistance, support, care um, that that children of color in particular need, especially given this divergence that you're talking about over the past 20 years uh, in terms of the the long-term emergency uh, for mental health and children of color. So we're going to talk about that when we come back. This is on point. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide? There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators. This is Postmortem, The Stolen Bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And for a while now, we've been hearing about uh, a mental health emergency amongst America's young people, particularly because of the impact of two two years of the COVID pandemic. But today we're looking at uh, a crisis and an emergency that's been there all along that hasn't received enough attention. And that is the mental health needs, particularly of children of color. Before the break, we talked a little bit about um, this really heartbreaking truth that, for example, for black children between the ages of 5 to 12, 
the suicide rate is nearly that, is nearly twice that for, for white children. Now, while among teenagers and, and young adults, suicide rates are higher among whites and Native Americans, nevertheless, the rate of increase for suicides among black youths has skyrocketed uh, from 2013 to 2019. I'm looking at some studies that say the suicide rate of black boys and men between the ages of 15 to 24 rose by 47 percent and almost 60 percent for black girls and women of the same age. So we're talking about that today. And Tammy Charles joins us from Louisville, Kentucky. Her 10-year-old son, 10-year-old son, Seven Bridges, died by suicide in 2019. And Dr. Kevin Simon is with us as well. He's a child, an adolescent psychiatrist, and an instructor at Harvard Medical School. And Tammy and Dr. Simon, we actually heard quite a bit from, from listeners with whom this really resonated with. For example, this is uh, Lene Papillon. She's 24 years old. She's a law student. Uh, and she called us from Baton Rouge in Louisiana. And she definitely says she's seen a change in her mental health. I have definitely seen a more darker side of myself. My mental health has definitely taken the toll from where I was to where I am now. And Lene told us that one of the things that's made uh, her mental health worsen is just witnessing year after year uh, the violence that's perpetrated on the black community. It breaks my heart. Like, when we deal with this every single day and nobody speaks up for us, and the people that do speak up for us, they are also attacked. So it's definitely been a mind-blowing experience for me as a Black woman who's in law. So that's Lene Papillon. She's uh, 24 years old and called us from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Um, I just want to talk about that here for a second with both of you. And um, and Dr. Simon and, and Tammy, please feel free to just talk with each other. And let me just set up the question here. Sure. But, um, but Lene spoke... She's speaking very clearly about just the the additional mental health pressures uh, about being black in America. Right. So, I mean, can can you talk about how that factors into these horrible numbers we're seeing about mental health crises amongst pe- children of color? Yeah, you know, something that Miss um, Charles noted that I wrote down um, about her own son was that um, he was aware of who he was, like in in even at 10, 9, what that, what that means in society, right? And so uh, even the caller noted she's recognizing a darker sense of herself. You know, from, like, historical literature, there's, there's this idea of the double consciousness for black people and code switching, That's right. right? And so That's right. you have to, in our society, how I behave on, on my block is very different than how I behave in the boardroom, is very different than how I behave at church. And when you're existing as a black American, um, it can be challenging and stressful to be having to do that consistently. So then now, layer on the pandemic where we're isolated and we're now visually seeing, during summer of 2020 particularly, mm-hmm. um, video after video after video of violence. There's actually a study even before 2020 in the Journal of Adolescent Health that described for black youth what it's like to see uh, in social media horrifying images. And it said youth would likely have symptoms of PTSD, symptoms of anxiety, symptoms of depression. This is predating the summer of 2020. So now you layer on summer of 2020 and then the pandemic. It's not surprising that at Children's um, and other hospitals, at least locally, and I know that this is the same case nationally, we were seeing record number of borders, i.e. people who needed inpatient level or higher level of psychiatric care presenting themselves to the emergency room, but we don't have enough beds. And so you're hearing about 30 patients waiting, 40 patients waiting, and children, at one point in time, there's about 50 patients waiting between the ED and the medical floors for a higher level of psychiatric care. And so... And waiting a long time sometimes. Yes, no, waiting no, a no. long time yeah. um, on, on, on the, like, weeks, yes. Yeah. My take on that portion is... Um, 
what you're describing is definitely contemporary. Seven had a, when I gave birth to Seven, I was 35 years old. My husband was 53. So he had some very old parents who had lived a long time through some rough stuff that black people do that predates the visual mm-hmm. uh, and worldwide sense of summer of 2020. Mm-hmm. Now, as you said, you read you read to KJ and all of the books that they have. And in our, in our home, um, we early read Up From Slavery, uh, Calluses on My Soul, uh, all of the Martin Luther King speeches and, and videos and that. So my son was already pre-exposed to um, what it would look like and how um, people of African descent is is portrayed and treated. So we were already there in the brink of it, not trying to prepare him against anything, but understand how other people may see. Mm -hmm. Um, With us, those things were already in his mind. So I can understand now when people are uh, exposed to it, it's so much so fast that, that don't already have a motion of memory. They don't, already have a historical point or, you know, sitting around the bonfires speaking to mama, grandmama, big mama, and when we're talking about our ways of knowing each other. Mm. Uh, I found that that was incredible foundational for um, not necessarily prevention, but at least an abreast to um, feeling darker and lesser, as as the the twenty four year old said uh, about their mental health, about the way people see, which is which is just a way of knowing. Now you know, and it, in summer twenty twenty, it came to people like, oh, now now you know. Right. We could speak of thousands, and and if you're working in the community as I do, I sell a black hair care product to black beauty salons. So it's all about my community. And I, unlike uh, Dr. Simon, I I am the same here on this line in all of my boardrooms and in my church mm-hmm. and and in in the school. So it is is where you are in the community on how far you have to do the code switching. Code switching is there, but it doesn't have to be used, and yeah, it is not right. for everyone. Yeah. But it's it's imperative that you're able to move through these spaces. Again, knowing who he was as a person was important for me for seven to know that I'm getting ready to present him to several spaces. Right. And he knowing himself, like our family, gave him the fluidity to move. Now, it Ms. is... Charles- Sure. There, there's something you said. Um, the, the word, particularly, was prevention, um, and I just want to highlight: we really don't have a great prevention system within. Oh, who are you talking to? <laughs> I know you who think I am. You're telling talking. me something? No, no, no. I, it, you know, the audience is listening. I found so I'm just, my I'm, son dead. I know I, prevention so, don't work. <laughs> so, and this this is a major challenge that we have. It's very difficult to identify and say, "Oh, this is the youth that's going to mm. harm themselves." Because yeah. they can be smiling, they can be playing their video game, they can be um, seemingly juvial as they always are, and mm-hmm. sometimes some mental health conditions, right? They they reside within us, not outside of us. And so, if he went to sleep and mom's kissing him, and he wakes up, and I've seen this with my patients, they they describe to me waking up, and from the moment they've woken up, their eyes open they feel a cloud over them. And it's very difficult to contextualize for me. Like, well, what, when you say a cloud, can you, can you explain that to me? They're like, Dr. Simon, it's as though I know I don't want to be here. Mm. And so now they happen to be talking to me, and so I, I can help them tease that out. But yeah, I think there's a lot of people who don't have anyone to talk to. Right. And exactly. Can I ask yeah. ask you something else, um, Dr. Simon? Mm-hmm. And and that is it links to something that you, you had said earlier. Um, there's no one specific set of signs of distress that repeats in every person, right? right? Um, and especially, I imagine in young people, it can mm-hmm. be even more varied. But I'm wondering again, because of what race is in America and right. racism in America, does the you know, if indeed a a uh, a child, I don't know, like in in schools mm-hmm. or uh, you know, makes it to to the hospital or gets some kind of care. I mean, there's a big gap between 
even to get care. Is mm-hmm. it also possible that that the signs of what's actually distress in a right. child of color are just interpreted as something else yes. by the professional? Oh, good, good, yes. Magna. Oh, good. Who, um, Magna? Let me take. Let me let me take. Go, the, let me take it first. Go yeah, ahead, Dr. Go Simon. Ahead. <laughs> All right, just on the social side, you keep your. We'll let your degree speak in a minute. Socially, historically, in any way of people of color crying out for help has traditionally always been ignored, uh, lessened, and, and, and even to the, and I, maybe we missed the boat, but even in terms of pain, physical pain itself, our melanin to some of the doctors and, and, and the practitioners signals to them that we can tolerate more pain. So we don't need as many uh, medical devices and many outlets, um, as as much intervention because of what we can take. And what is amazing about that is, of course, now studies will support that that thinking and that even teaching in the schools. So the weight of us as uh, people of color, it's almost a DNA uh, a hack where we have to pass on or be the example of or even teach our children how to be strong. Right. And that word and that that persona is so overrated and so um, overused due, due to the fact that my grandmother used to carry 70 pounds of cotton. Mm. And I, I'm good to, par- to carry two gallons of milk. Right. So strength is something that that is forced upon us and that is perceived that we already have. And sometimes we as people think that we're supposed to have it. And when we don't have it, we feel even alienated from the thing that is supposed to already be ours. That puts us in a conundrum for both sides. People who, officials who we run to for help and for the fact that we actually need help. Yeah. So, so what puts Ms. us in a place? What Miss Charles is talking about is, is 100% correct in that for youth and, and adults, unfortunately, because of society and historical like tropes, there is this perception of, wait, I should be able to get through this, right? If you are an adolescent or you are a young adult, like, I should, like, this shouldn't hold me back. So now you're in your own head thinking, wait a minute. I should I should be fine. I don't need to talk to anybody. Then now, if you do actually end up in the emergency room, unfortunately, black youth are adultified, uh-huh. right? So you have a ten year old, but people are perceiving that ten year old to be fifteen, and so you're expecting that fifteen year old to behave in a way, but they might be ten. And this has happened to me where someone's telling me, "Hey, Dr. Simon, we got a sixteen year old female." And I look in the chart, I'm like, actually, she's 14, uh. right? Um, in terms of pain, there's evidence that pain is treated very differently against uh, black patients versus white patients. But specifically to, to the mental health in terms of when you end up in the, the hospital, in the clinic, unfortunately, because there are not enough providers of color, there's a lot of misdiagnosis that happens. Mm-hmm. And so with misdiagnosis, that comes mistreatment, um, black youth, um, tend not to be provided evidence-based treatments. Um, so I have a, uh, a case where eight-year-old female with autism, every day for several weeks, she was being put in, quote-unquote, timeout. And that was perceived as, like, a good thing by the school. Sent to our emergency room a couple of times, discharged each time because there was no real, like, behavioral dysregulation. And as when we meet, and then I'm able to contextualize, oh, wait a minute, She's one of only two black girls in her class. Uh-huh. Okay, wait a minute. <laughs> There's no other teachers of color. Mm-hmm. Oh, so the behavior that she is exhibiting, right. which is really autistic repetitive behavior, is being viewed as something else. Something else. Yes, right. Yes. yes. Black girl acting up. Right. Yes. Yeah, I was going to say, like, so, so for even for children, black girl who acting have, up. De- children who have depression or anxiety, yep. it's not red as that. It's red as misbehavior. Correct. Correct. Okay. You know, we are, we are so 
we're running out of time. We've just got a minute left, and um, I feel like we've only gotten started, really, because this is so, so important. But I just literally have 30 seconds left, okay? So, Ms. Charles, I want to give you the last word here because we're not going to solve this problem at all with one-hour conversation. Um, but clearly, there's a need. There are children in need. So for folks listening right now, I mean, just what's – you got 20 seconds, Ms. Charles. What, what do you want them to know? I want them to know they should take this audio and this sound and share it with as many people as you can. No, we can't stop it. No, prevention is a hard word, but awareness is our biggest tool. Together, we can become aware of each other and our feelings and then that way learn to teach each other and learn ourselves a different way and a better way to move forward and have a tomorrow shine on. Well, Tammy Charles in Louisville, Kentucky, thank you so much for joining us, Ms. Charles. Thank you. And Dr. Kevin Simon uh, at Harvard Medical School, a psychiatrist and specialist in child and adolescent psychiatry. Dr. Simon, thank you so much. Thank you for having this conversation. We're going to come back to this uh, uh, soon, really, to talk more about what we can do uh, to help the mental health crisis of children in America. This is On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the Balance Scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the Balance Scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody had thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short-term, mid-term, long-term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, it, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.